Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. How are you doing, Tim? Shalom. Shalom. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing just fine. And uh, another cold, wintry day. Any day now, it's going to be... We're in the cold season. Almost like it's winter, but never Christmas. Anyway, no no reaction to that? Okay, well, <laughs> here's what's in this episode. We're going to start off with some Andy's weekly wisdom. We are going to read a wonderful quote from Sir Tejange. Then we're going to have a, a listener email uh, discussion about translations that came in study bibles Bibles. and then uh we're going to talk about books and business things that we've been working on reading and the main content of the episode we're going to talk about the image of god what does that mean in genesis chapter one and uh then we're gonna have a final meditation in isaiah chapter 40 Ooh, sounds like a full episode (laughs) what (laughs) Tim needs a cup of coffee. Tim needs a cup of coffee. I think he's, 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 uh, I'm in thought. He's, he's immersed about our content in thought. It's All right. So whoosh. Andy's weekly wisdom. This is from the, uh, still, we're still in the same chapter. So the main heading, the organization of life talked about simplifying. He talked about solitude. He talked about cooperation with one's fellows. Oop. Right on cue. <laughs> That Keep was, going. That was Thinkling Stearns. I don't know what he's exclaiming about when he texted <laughs> me. Uh, I need to turn, I'll turn on Do Not Disturb so that doesn't happen again. Not that I'm ignoring him, but uh, cultivation of necessary contacts and then the safeguarding of the necessary element of action. And where there are sometimes things in life you just have to do, you have to do them. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, the same father of the mind is the father of the other real uh, active parts of your life. You know, there's one God who's sovereign over the things you have to do. So you should do them. So in that same kind of section, he's going to talk about what he calls the exterior virtues. So these other things we do in life. And, uh, I just like the picture of what he paints here. The exterior virtues, this is page 66. The exterior virtues will thus help the interior ones. Active investigation will serve recollection. The bees spoil will prepare the honey. And that's, that's, that's a thought. That's a thought. So I'm going to read that again. The bees, like, the bees spoil will prepare the honey. So think about the picture of that. (laughs) If all the bee does is sit in the hive, there's no honey. The bee has to, it's necessary to go out and gather some things and bring it back. Now, they don't do that all the time. They have a purpose. They're going to come back to the hive. They're trying to feed the colony. Yep. But the activity outside of the hive is integral to the purpose in the hive. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's, he's using that picture, looking at our lives. And sometimes you just want to sit in and you want to read, 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 read. You don't want to go out and do anything. But it's the activity out there Mm -hmm. that helps you in the study yeah that helps you get to those really sweet nuggets 
And I just, I just liked that illustration. He, he does that, I think, really well, is he kind of talks about all this nonsense and he will get very abstract and use big words. And you're like, what is he talking about? And then he'll be like, the bees spoil, we'll prepare the honey. And you're like, ooh, that is a good thought, Sir Tayange. And so uh, just it, another picture of the same point we made a couple of weeks ago, that the necessary aspects of the physical life are not always a hindrance to the intellectual life, that they are together in balance under the sovereignty of the same God. And if you ignore one, it will probably affect the other. Mm-hmm. So, Andy's Weekly Wisdom, uh, the bees spoil makes the honey. Anyway, let's get back to that template. Listener feedback. Listener feedback. So, we had an email. I don't know why I said it like that. That took on a weird tone. We had, a, we had an email come in and from Decker Warner. Warner, uh, I believe a freshman this year. I recognize the name because I make all of their accounts. Anyway, here's his email. Hello, Thanklings. I have been listening to your podcast for a few weeks, and I found it provoking and enjoyable. Well, at least we know he's honest. Okay. If I'm not mistaken, Thankling Little once said in a lecture that the ESV study Bible tends to be charismatic. And uh, the key there, not the ESV translation, the ESV study Bible. The study Bible. Okay tends to be quote-unquote charismatic and against the theology of Faith Baptist Bible College. Could you elaborate on this a little bit more and or discuss study Bibles in general on the podcast? Uh, so I'll talk about the ESV study Bible in the notes uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, specifically uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. I'm going to go ahead and read the comment. Interpreters differ over the time when Paul expects prophecies to pass away and tongues to cease, along with other gifts represented by these examples. The cessationist view is that miraculous gifts such as prophecy, healing, tongues, interpretation, and miracles were given to authenticate the apostles and their writings in the early years of the church, but those gifts ceased once the entire New Testament was written and the apostles died around 100 AD. So that's view number one, the cessationist view. Uh, we, so there's disagreement among the faculty at faith uh, concerning the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, but uh, all of the faculty at faith agree that the gifts have ceased. We would be called cessationists. Okay, so then uh, the ESV study note continues. Others hold that Paul expected these gifts to continue until Christ returns, which will be the time when the perfect ways of speaking and knowing in the age to come replace the in part gifts of the age. So what the the commentator is talking about, the commentator, the study notes of the ESV study Bible are talking about is what is the perfect and what is the part in 1 Corinthians 13, which you can write, you can read articles on that. Dr. Myron Houghton, a longtime uh, systematic theology professor at Faith Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a, an article on this very topic. It was published in Bibsac, uh, a journal. So you can read that. Um, this The study notes of this Bible disagree with Dr. Myron. Uh, so what do these things mean? So, I mean, a study Bible is not going to necessarily agree with our theology on every point. Uh, but are they going to what go against our our view 
or are they just going to kind of present different views? Well, this next sentence, so far they've basically just presented the two views. But then in the next sentence, support for the second position is found in verse 12, which indicates that then, the time when these gifts will cease, is the time of Christ's return. So in that sentence, what has the study Bible notes, what position have they promoted? Not cessationism. The non-cessationist view. Okay, and that's going to be seen again later on in like 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 5, uh, some of the notes there. Um, but the study notes themselves, it's not super overt. So a lot of people would read through it and just be like, whatever. But whoever wrote the notes, uh, and I could look up who did write the notes, it would be at the beginning of the study Bible. You, what you would see is the person, they, they believe in uh, the, the charismatic gifts. Um, properly followed, uh, but many of the ESV and Crossway publishers, they may not exercise the gifts, but they believe that the, the gifts are continuous. Uh, they are not cessationists as we would be. Are we good there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now going over to the study note on Revelation 3.10. Um... Let's see here. So Revelation 3.10, I just just read the verse. Uh, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So what is this hour of trial that is coming on the whole world? Many at faith have historically interpreted this passage to refer to the rapture and that uh, the Lord is going to rapture his church before the trial that's going to come upon the whole world happens. Okay, so the study note here, um, you know what, I'm not going to take the time to read through the whole note, but if you read the study note on Revelation 3.10, what you're basically going to see is they disagree with that position. In fact, they take an uh, anti-pre-tribulational rapture position uh, in the study note, um, and uh, many who hold a pre-tribulational rapture position believed that this verse means Christ will take them out of the world before a literal great tribulation period begins. Other interpreters, see, they're they're going to dig that view, which would be ours. Other interpreters, however, see this as God's promise to safeguard and remain faithful to believers who endure patiently in the midst of the hour of trial that is to come, which many within Crossway and the ESV study Bible field, most many of them are post-tribulational. Uh, which we would, that's what's being taught here, okay? Um, So the hour of trial that is to come, though it does not imply that he will take believers out of the world at that time, um, where it does not imply removal from the world, and they're referencing a passage to support their position, which is contrary to the position of our institution. Are you good? Yeah. Okay, so hopefully you followed all of that. Those are just a couple of the notes where the ESV Study Bible is, they are against a dispensational view. They're against us uh, as far as dispensationalism is concerned. I think the charismatic stuff is a little more muted. On the other hand, what the study Bible I, I usually do recommend, well, there's a few different study Bibles that I would recommend, but what's nice about the ESV Study Bible is very p- pretty. Like, it's color. Mm. And uh, it's very robust. There's a lot of good articles in it. There's a lot of really good stuff in the ESV study Bible. A lot of that is also in the uh, CSB study Bible. Uh, So uh, if you're interested in a study Bible, I'd prefer recommend the the ones produced by Broadman Holman, Lifeway, 
And the CSB Study Bible, KJV Study Bible, and KJV Study Bible, they put it in a few different translations. So on Revelation 3.10, they say, the hour of testing refers to the Great Tribulation. That's our view. <laughs> uh, though the wording may sound like a reference to all who inhabit the world at that time, those who live on the earth, earth dwellers, from this point of view on in the notes, is a phrase used repeatedly in Revelation. Okay, so that what is a study Bible? Well, a study Bible is producing a little bit of commentary on the biblical text. Well, who gets to choose and who's writing the commentary? All right. ESV study Bible is typically produced from a Reformed perspective that is typically post-tribulational or amillennial and who are open to the miraculous gifts. So that theology comes through sometimes in those study notes. Yeah, and I was just going to say brief at the end of that, it really is just, well, who's writing the notes? Right. Just, like it's it's a text, it's a translation, and then it's, imagine a theology book, and it's specific points of theology, it's specific passages, and if you have a charismatic or a post-millennial writing those study notes, you better believe that their views are going to come through. Exactly. And, and in fact, if I could find one that was written by a post-millennial or a charismatic who was faithfully representing all views, I would actually applaud them because I think that's hard to do. Uh, it's, it's very easy to deprecate the view that you oppose. And uh, anyway, uh, good stuff there. And I, so the CSB is like the newer version of what was the HCSB, correct? Correct. I was using the HCSB. Uh, right now, just because that's the one. That's I what, okay. I, but it is the CSB. Um, yep. Today would be the CSB so study Bible. Shout out to the, the Souders in Williamsburg. When I graduated high school, they gave me a HCSB study Bible that had Schofield notes in it. Huh. And where that would be somewhat valuable is mm -hmm. Schofield would have been dispensational. And, right. uh, you know, we might not agree, agree on every point, but he's going to at least be in the vein of what we're, what mm -hmm. we're thinking there. Um, anyway, so good question. Hmm? That was a good question. Yeah. Thanks for sending that in. And Tim, did you know that we have an email that any listener can email something to us at the thinklings podcast at gmail.com? We've gotten several emails, uh, since you have started drumming this up a little bit more, Charlie, we're going to have to be a little more selective. I don't believe in drums. Anyway. So, uh, <laughs> you're horrendous. <laughs> it's that time to do the thing. That we always do. Books and business. So let's talk about some books. And uh, I'm going to kind of say the same thing I did last time, where I've been reading Genesis commentaries. We're going to talk about that later in the episode. I also just started a book today. Uh, I can't remember the title of it, but if I found it at a used bookstore. And the idea of the book is like the myths and fantasies that C.S. Lewis read that like, quote unquote, inspired him. And there's another one about Tolkien that came a couple years earlier. The first one was 2003 and this one was 2007. And the covers got like the white witch and the polar bears on the front, like a Narnia vibe to it. And I saw it for like five bucks and I was like, ah, that's, you know, probably better than a, you know, whatever, you know. And so uh, I started reading that today. Uh, I read the first entry, which was like a Norse poem. And uh, Lewis cites this poem as like when he talks about the, and surprised by joy, this longing, the stab of joy. He, he references this poem about Balder the Beautiful dying. And it's like Balder the Beautiful has died. He has died. And like you read it and you're like, it's like kind of he 
says it makes him feel this northernness, like this Norseness. And it like awakens in him this desire for this like myth that he knows isn't real, uh, but he still like loves it. And so uh, that was cool. It was a really short read for the first one. Uh, the next couple are a little bit longer, so I knew I had to devote a little bit more time to them. But just started that, really excited about that. So uh, I'm going to highlight a couple of audio adventures. So Majesty Music produces a Patch the Pirate adventure every single fall. And the last two were Whale of a Tale and A Tale of Two Siblings. So Whale of a Tale, and they're going through the classics. I don't know if they're going to continue this. The new one is just released for the fall. I've not yet listened to it. But uh, I've been pretty impressed with the uh, last two adventures. Again, I haven't read the, or listened to the one for that I, I ordered it just recently. So, But Whale of a Tale is a riff off of... Moby Dick. Moby Dick. That's right. And then A Tale of Two Siblings is a riff off of... Tale of Two Cities. A Tale of Two Cities, which I thought was a real ingenious way to take classic pieces of literature, introduce them to children, and plus then also create some moral lessons, sing some usually decent songs uh, as well. And so for my books and business today, I just wanted to highlight those are some of the... Especially if you have younger kids, uh, my children... They love listening to Whale of a Tale and Tale of Two Siblings. Uh, we're going to outgrow that pretty soon. My my children are getting older. And, you know, after a while, the older kids are already very indifferent. They'd rather be listening to uh, Stormlight uh, Archive or something. By <laughs> we, We've started the second book of the Stormlight Archive. and uh, But the younger children are very much not in favor of that. And they want to listen to Whale of a Tale and Tale of Two Siblings. So Okay, so this is not planned. It's not on our episode template. Oh, boy. So here is the rabbit trail. Oh, no. So the other day, so this is really roundabout. I've gotten my haircut from the same person for like almost three years. And they moved from this one place where they're cutting hair in West Des Moines to this other place. And I got this text like a week ago and they're like, hey, I no longer work at this place. I work at this place now. Marissa, if she's listening to this. I love you, Marissa. Thank you for cutting my hair for three years. And um, shoot. To tell me where she was at, she goes, I've moved to this new location. It's right next to mm. Barnes and Noble. Oh, there you go. And in, I'm like, this is the blessing of Yahweh upon me. <laughs> so now, once a month, I'm going to go get my hair cut. And I'm across the parking lot from a two-story Barnes and Noble. Now, I went into that Barnes and Noble. And I was determined to find books that I wanted by myself. And I left Barnes and Noble with no books because I couldn't find them. And so, uh, you know, they have a lot of the classics like Tale of Two Cities. They have all that stuff. Well, yeah, Moby Dick. And, um, so all that to say is I was perusing and I went, obviously, you know, friend of the podcast, Andrew Peterson, I went and found his books and was like, ah, look at that. Kind of spread them out for people to find. And then I, I was walking in the fantasy era of the place and I saw all the Brandon Sanderson. Oh boy. And, uh, we've had a couple of people email in specifically recommending things that I need to read. And, uh, Sanderson was one of them. Now, Stormlight. I saw that. I saw The Way of Kings. I saw that. The only book that I almost bought, the title intrigued me. The cover art intrigued me. It's the book. It's a one-off that he wrote for his wife. The main character is a girl, and it's like some romantic tale. You're horrendous. I didn't know that. (laughs) But I was like, if I was going to buy one of these by look alone, it'd be that one. 
and I pulled it and I read the back and I put it back. <laughs> I'm like, done. This is nonsense. We're, just, we're not reading this. I started Mistborn. It's one of his other series as they well. Do, they do look in, I will get to them at some point. It's probably a summer endeavor. Uh, as with some of the other recommendations that have come to me. Uh, anyway, it's time for Genesis chapter one. So the main thing we're going to talk about, let's have a conversation about the image of God in man. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, or maybe last week, just kind of got on this tangent in study. And I don't know exactly what spurred me to this. Uh, it might've been studying in Hebrews that got me down this, but started turning to Genesis one to study out the verses 26 and 27, mainly focusing on 27. And uh, I'll read both of those verses and then we'll just talk about them. So verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's a, a pretty ripe theological discussion down through the ages. What does it mean to be made in the image or the likeness of God? And uh, so I went to the commentaries, a couple of them that I have, and just started kind of surveying. Like, what do people say about this? And uh, before I went into that study, what I can remember from my theological training is really two views. One, that it's something of our spiritual nature that differentiates us from other created beings. And this is where usually what gets posited into the conversation is, like God, humans have intellect, emotion, and, and emotion, will. Mm -hmm. and will. And uh, as someone who has adjunctly taught in classes, what I usually challenge, I try to do this Socratically, when someone gives me that answer, I say, well, what about animals? Do they have intelligence? Uh, what about angels? Do they have a decision-making faculty? Like they can choose to rebel, like get cast down out of heaven? kind of just like, you know, put it, put a pebble in the shoe, trying to consider angles uh, theologically. And then what usually follows in that discussion, well, it's to a higher degree than the animals, or it's in a different way than the angels. And, that, and to be fair, that's a, a position that's been commonly held for a long time. But that's one view that I had been taught. And then when I got to seminary, the other view was a very, uh, shall we call it messianic view that gets into this idea of dominion, that God, we're in his image, almost his representative on earth uh, of a ruler. And then obviously that is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, ruined quite quickly. <laughs> within, within seven days, maybe. Uh, well, actually we have no idea, but probably pretty quickly. Um, so, uh, those are the views I'm looking to read about. And then I, I learned about a couple other views that I hadn't really ever given much time to. And so uh, I've tried to highlight these. And uh, let's see. So 
uh, one of these is um, kind of gets into this idea in that first verse in verse 26. Uh, are we talking about ontological facets of humanity? So something about who we are, like our being. And uh, a very common view going all the way back to some of the early fathers like Arrhenius is that image and likeness are not synonyms, that they're highlighting different aspects of us. So like one is our mental capabilities, our reasoning, and the other is, uh, you know, some other facet of our will or something like that. And that's a very common view. And uh, both commentaries that I dove into sort of just get rid of that thinking on exegetical grounds that for the most part, these terms are used synonymously in chapter one, in chapter five, and in chapter nine, when we keep bringing the image up. And so it doesn't seem like there's this two distinctions of humanity's ontology. Is that, I don't know if I'm communicating that right. Does that sound right? Sure. <laughs> You're getting into a bunch of theology stuff. Anyway, so, um, so, uh, the second, and we kind of already talked about this, but this is where we get into, they're probably both referring to the same facet and that it's this spiritual, uh, something of our spirituality. Uh, so the image referring to a mental or spiritual faculty that man shares with his creator. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where, again, you have categories like intellect, emotion, and will come up, but it's not as if they're two separate things, image and likeness, but it's both referring to something of our spiritual nature. And my students have heard me say this, I've never seen dogs having an ethical debate. Mm -hmm. And th that's kind of the idea that we are at the pinnacle of creation of God's image. We have these faculties, uh, spiritual faculties that uh, help us understand and practice truth. Another one that I hadn't really thought about is that the image of God just being a physical marker. Like the image consists of a physical resemblance, meaning that man looks like God. And you can flip it around, you know, when Jesus is born, he's human. Right. When he appears in the Old Testament, he appears as a human. Human. And so the image is that we physically bear resemblance to him. Mm -hmm. And this is not a foreign concept in scripture. Uh, most of these commentaries are focusing on Hebrew. But for the Aramaic student, <laughs> one could go to the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And in chapter three, the same word for image found in, in, it's not the same term. It's a different language, technically. But it's like the same. It's the same word. It's, it's a cognate. They're, they're, they're married languages, Hebrew yeah. and Aramaic. And so the same word used in Genesis uh, one of image of God, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image. Mm hmm the golden image that yep. resembles him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so very clearly it's something that bears physical resemblance to the one that made it. Yeah. And uh, so that's another view. That's the third view here in the world biblical commentary. Uh, the fourth is where we get to this image of God as a representative on earth. And uh, uh, in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, you'd have a representative ruling in the place of the true ruler. And that's kind of the idea here that man is made in the divine image and thus is God's representative on earth as a, as a king, the earthly king of the heavenly king. And uh, there are spiritual uh, ramifications of that 
especially as you think through, well, man falls into sin. So what happens to that rule? And then when is that rule restored? Mm -hmm. And then the last view uh, put to here is, um, which I would consider, this is the only view that I just think is horrendous. It's a Karl Barth and it's an existential view. It's that the image is man's capacity to have relationship with God. So it's not referring to some spiritual um, faculty, like a mind. It's not referring to a physical resemblance. It's that humans can have a relationship with God. So it's this very existential idea. And I just think that's like so horrendous. Like I don't think we should even consider that view. So of those other four, you know, where do we land on something like this? And we don't have time to really unpack this, but there is, uh, in Hebrews, there's this discussion of Christ who is for a little time made lower than the angels, but all things will be subject to him. And you have like Psalm eight, for example, this king, it's the messianic ruler who will come And it seems like the writer or author of Hebrews applies some of these ideas of ruling authority to Jesus when he will come. And that's that's a view that I was taught in my Hebrews class here in the seminary by Dr. Doug Brown. And actually, I think that's where I land. And uh, Dominion idea. The dominion idea. And if you read verse 26... Mm -hmm. When he mentions this, which it's a it's a a fun Trinitarian verse, let us. So there's this conversation happening. Just keep going. Tim doesn't like that. <laughs> I I not to say that I don't have any issues with that, but there's a lot of plural endings going on there. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so God says, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness." So He states that we're going to create man. And what is man's function? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing. What's unique is when this comes back up in subsequent chapters, after sin has been entered into the equation, Mm -hmm. there is not a repetition of man's rule. Yeah. There are other governing authorities, such as God's law. Like, this is what you do when someone murders someone. Right. And this is what you do, you know? And uh, seemingly that sin has affected, or another common word that's used, Mars, uh, blurs the image of God, distorts it in some way. Mm-hmm. So it's I- imperfect, but it's still present. Yeah. Uh, waiting restoration. And again, I think you see right in the context of the image of God is the idea of dominion. And I think you even see a hint of it in verse 27. And uh, I have to do more study on this, but I think it's super interesting that he mentions he creates man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, and then he makes this distinction about male and female. Mm -hmm. What does that have to do with the image of God? And I think there's a hint here of what will be the mandate to multiply. Um, that the dominion that will be had on the earth is through the procreation mandate. Now, again, that's just an idea. Verse 28 kind of 
be fruitful and multiply yeah. and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And it'd be really hard for Adam to do that. Mm-hmm. Without if he an had, Eve. Without an Eve. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so almost the, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. He wants them to be fruitful and multiply. He wants them to have dominion. Mm-hmm. And uh, procreation is a means by which they're going to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to say Adam couldn't have done it, but he needed Eve and he needed children. <laughs> and uh, so um, we could get into the intricacies of verse 27. Uh, it does look like he repeats himself a little bit. Most commentators point out it's a chiastic structure. So the second or middle line is the focus. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That center is the the heart of it. And uh, it's worthwhile to think about that. In what sense is humanity differentiated from the other creations that would include uh, angels, include the beasts, include the creeping things? What differentiates us from them? I think here what's being portrayed is that while all are created by God and share in some of his spiritual faculties, man was to be in dominion. And then, of course, that is marred or removed in sin, but will be restored in the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I was going to go to a, a second view, uh, if you were to take that one off the table, and you say, I'm going to, you know, like on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? They'd do like the 50 <laughs> 50, and they'd cut out two of the answers and like, well, that's what I think is right, and boop, it's gone. I would then would go to the intellect, emotion, will, like it's a spiritual faculty. Uh-huh. Um, it, we are like him in some way. What in what way are we like him? Mm-hmm. And that we reason and we think and we have those faculties. Did anybody argue for like a multifaceted view, where um, it's a few of these things? Uh, not specifically. Okay. Uh, so I believe I'm not saying that's the right view or whatever. I don't have a strong. I see dominion because dominion is all over in verses 26 through 28. Yeah. But the image word itself. And then even the spiritual components seem to be themes. So I, I just kind of wondered, I haven't studied this extensively, if there was a multifaceted view, but you didn't run into one. Uh, it, it appears as if... So th- this would be getting more into the organization of the, cat- of the commentaries that I'm reading here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are discussions of rulership in the first one. This would be... The uh, New American Commentary. Matthews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it seems like he's leaning that way, but they don't really take a position. It's kind of just sure. a survey. And then now he's on to verse 27. I didn't get into the weeds of like reading all the notes and yeah, yeah. Wa- walking through his text. I, and there's a, a lengthy excursus on interpreting what the image of God means. Um, he seems to not like the ontological idea. So um, he, he points out early fathers that hold views like that, and uh, like Aquinas, and he uh, seems, to, seems to not like what they say. Um, let's see if I can find... I tried to highlight some quotes here. Well, you're fine. I just was wondering if that was something that you ran into. So you haven't... It might not even be a view. I'm just brainstorming. So he, he breaks down here. So historically, you have... Like early views, which is most mostly ontological, 
And then he gets into like, there's a translation of the Septuagint that a lot of people build theology off of. And he's like, eh. and then he talks about the middle ages um, where they continue to differentiate. There's the image, which is one thing and the likeness, which is another thing. Still this uh-huh. two ontological facets. And then you get into the reformers who he say, just like throw that out. And he gets into uh, Calvin and the reformed view. And this is what he says. Reformed theology has traditionally held that mankind was created in the image of God, which was perfect in knowledge and righteousness, suffered irreparable destruction in the fall, and is delivered only through Christ's death and resurrection, whereby the image is being progressively transformed in the believer until its state of perfection at the resurrection. Now, he just had this really long section about what Reformed theologians think the image is, but he didn't really say what they it think was. it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and then he comes to the modern era. Our century has witnessed the rise of rival viewpoints, uh, mainly the physical form view and appropriately to the modern age, the existential view, um, which he does say, Bart's exegesis of 126 and 27 is on shaky grounds, um, <laughs> which I agree with him. Um And then during this latter half of our century, the dominant interpretation, though not new, he cites a Chrysostom, has become the functional one that the image in humanity is the divinely ordered, uh, ordained role to rule over the lower orders. And so I think that's uh, Matthew's view is the authority view. And then uh, let's see. Tim's giving me a thumbs up. (laughs) We don't need to know what Wenham's view is. But anyway, uh, I think I'm going to keep studying this out. Uh, Mainly when you get into Hebrews 2, there's some comparisons made to Psalm 8. And then later on in Hebrews, there's comparison to the heavenly tabernacle, to the earthly tabernacle. And that comes up in these discussions. Like there's this other reality that we don't see. And this earthly thing is created to look like it, like God and man. And so we'll get to that at some point in Hebrews. So. Anyway. Sounds good. What do you think about that? Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, I've had a few students write papers on it, and the Dominion idea is strong enough that I think that you need to have that in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, The intellect, emotion, and will, I I can kind of see that idea. And the spiritual connotation, I can see that idea. Uh, if it's not there in that text, then it's someplace else. <laughs> and that's that to me <laughs> it's in Ecclesiastes. is why I think the dominion view would be superior is uh-huh. that you can look right there in the context. Yeah. Let's make him in our image and he will rule. Right. Like it seems like the, the practical mm-hmm. aspect of the image of God mm-hmm. is the dominion. And then the physical manifestation, like the image likeness. Okay. God is a spirit. I get that. I understand. But he, man, he, he can appear um, is the angel of the Lord. And then of course, Jesus appears not as a donkey, but as a person. Uh, and even, you know, God speaks through the donkey to Balaam. Um, but, but it's a donkey. All right. So, um, so this whole idea of the, um, image of God as being in the likeness of God, there might be some kind of an idea there. And, you know, we could try to think through what I try to do in Bible study all the time is, so, okay, how do we apply that? Uh, so what, what would our view of the image of God, what we actually think it is, how would we practically apply that to us today? Mm-hmm. And we'll leave that to another episode.
Okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, do I need to just jump into that quick? So let's have a final meditation in Isaiah 40. Yeah. So Isaiah 40, just going to look at the end of the uh, chapter, um, states, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So what's going on here in uh, Isaiah 40, 27 through 31, but I'm just going to work through 27 and 28 first. Israel, Jacob, makes an accusation against the Lord. They state, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They're accusing God of injustice. When it states, my way is hidden, when you hide, uh, what what is the implication? Hiding means that somebody can't find you. Yeah, they can't find you. All right. They can't see you. It's like, oh, God doesn't, God can't see. He can't find this. It's questioning the omniscience of God. Does he really see? Does he really know? Second, my right is disregarded by God. So now God sees it. He can find it. But what's the issue now? Doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't care or he doesn't have the power to take care of it. And this, when, when somebody goes through a difficulty, when they go through a trial or some kind of a, um, uh, just a, a difficult time, uh, is it like, God, do you see? Uh, God, are you, are you disregarding this? Look at what's going on in my life. And by the way, this is where the Christian faith is superior to other faiths. You can call out to God. You can tell him of those struggles. Uh, read through the laments. Pray them back to the Lord. Um, don't forget who he is, but pray them back to the Lord. In verse 28, uh, Isaiah responds, have you not known? Have you not heard? We have these rhetorical questions. It's just like, this is the truth. And it's almost got this tone of, have you not known? Like, duh. Have you not heard? Like, of course. Who is the Lord? He's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Well, with God as the creator, what does that speak of? Power. His power. God is omnipotent, and even when you go through a trial or a difficulty, God has the power to remove you from that trial. He could do it, though he often does not, and the text is going to talk about that. It states in the very next line, he does not grow faint. He does not faint or grow weary. And then the final line states, his understanding is unsearchable. So understanding, what's that the realm of? The mind. The mind. So it's like, oh, God doesn't see. God doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. It's hidden from him. No, he knows. He's omniscient. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. But his understanding, it's unsearchable. And so while you go through a trial, while you go through a difficulty, whatever that might be, uh, God knows he has the power. But the reason why you're going through that trial, that difficulty, you may never know. But what do you do? And what will God do? And that's what verses 29 through 31 teach us. God gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. The God of all strength, the God of all power, guess what he does? He empowers those who are faint. It states in verse 30, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 
As I'm getting older, my son has more strength, he has more energy than I have. If I need some help, I can call upon him, and he can use his muscles to take care of whatever the task might be. Well, guess what? Even those young people, they get tired. But God does not get tired, and he empowers those who wait upon him. That's what we get in verse 31. They who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. The believer is encouraged to wait, to wait on the Lord. And when does the believer encourage to wait on the Lord? Well, let's go back to verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. God, this isn't fair. This is unjust. I am going through this trial. What does God say? Wait on me. My understanding is unsearchable. I have power. I could get you out of that situation. I could remove that trial from your, from your circumstances. But maybe I'm trying to sanctify you through it. Maybe I am going to glorify myself through how you handle that trial. I, the Lord says, he will give you the strength to go through that problem. Wait upon him, believer. Wait upon the Lord. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.